0: Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask my guests to look back over their life and pick five things from it that they would like to put in a time capsule. Four things they love and would wish to preserve or have again, and one they would like to bury deep in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the filmmaker, writer, actor, comedian and presenter, Danny Wallace. Yes, clearly he'll take any job. For example, at the age of 22, he became a BBC producer and worked on Dead Ringers, The Mighty Boosh and Ross Noble Goes Global. He worked as a journalist and wrote the books Are You Dave Gorman, Join Me, Random Acts of Kindness and Yes Man, which was adapted into a film starring Jim Carrey. Six more highly successful books followed, as well as television presenting, panel games like Eight Out of Ten Cats and Would I Lie to You, acting roles, voiceovers and video games. Yeah, he gets about our Danny, doesn't he? But luckily, I managed to catch him at his home with a spare hour to talk about the things he would like to put into a time capsule. And this is That Conversation. Danny, thank you so much for being part of my time
2: capsule. What, what shape is this time capsule? Well, it's as large or as small as you like. So it's it's quite malleable. I yes, it is. Lost, that's it. Yes,
0: yeah, so you can. There's some quite
2: big things and there's some other little things. Okay. Yeah, and some are
0: invisible. So. Well, I'll try and find all the compartments for the small things, keep but, them safe. Thank you. I
2: don't want to mess things up. No, no, <laughs> no. I don't want. For example, Suffolk squashing a mouse. No, my God, could you imagine? It'd be terrible. It would. The podcast would be shut down. <laughs> It'd be the front page of the sun. <laughs> it would. <was. laughs> so, uh, so what's your first item? Well, I was thinking about this last night, and I, I don't know how I'm going to get it in there, but I'm just going to try. Um, <laughs> shaking with laughter. <laughs> shaking with laughter that uncontrollable, that feeling, it's so precious and it's so sort of rare when it happens and you, you can't stop it. And you know the, when you cry with laughter, afterwards you feel exhausted, right? But it's the best exercise kind of in the world because you feel somehow cleansed. Like, like, I don't know if there's something different about tears when you, <laughs> when you laugh as opposed to anything else, but it's just this euphoria and it's cleansing and, it's, and it becomes rarer, I think, the older you get. Um, I've got so many memories from when I was a kid of just absolutely losing it <laughs> and the pain. And I, I, when, I, when I was a teenager and I started to go and see comedy... When you found a comedian who was just so good that they could control your emotions and control your body in a sense, because it's like a it's like a magician pointing mm. at you and putting a spell on you to make your ribs hurt, you know? Yeah. And I remember that happening with Harry Hill. I remember that happening um, with Tim Vine. I remember it happening over the littlest things at school. Um I remember most recently probably when I was, I was reading a book um, where just the power of just some words or dead ink you know, can still have that power over you. So I love that, that, that feeling where you just can't control something but you're enjoying it so much and i think i would pop that in a time capsule um it's not, know, it's not often that you enjoy pain is it no and it really does hurt laughing like that doesn't it yeah it really i mean it's great though and you <laughs> know it's doing good somehow i don't know what's been fired off in your brain millions of you know dopamine and whatever else but just the um surrendering that's it. You're surrendering yourself to something that you want it. you want it to stop, right? Because it's uncomfortable and it's <laughs> embarrassing, but you just can't kind of, um, I don't know. It's gold. It's like little moments of gold in a day. And they're so rare. Yeah. Um, that I would like immediate access to it. And maybe every night, I think it would do the country, um, such a lot of good. If, if you could just trigger it off, you know, for two minutes before bedtime, or two minutes when you get up, uh, just uncontrollably shaking with laughter. I mean, it sounds like I'm going mad. <laughs> and it, and, uh, I think people would assume you had issues. Um, but I, I just think that the, 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 for mental health uh, and things like that, which I've never struggled with, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate, but I, I think that, that a, a moment where you surrender control to humour... Mm -hmm. Um, would just be a brilliant thing in a day it's one of those teenage bonding things as well isn't Mm -hmm. it that actually you always find a mate and you find one thing funny that nobody else does yeah Yeah, it just goes on and on and you can't and people are looking at you and they want to in on the joke and they always that moment with the half smile someone goes what are you laughing at and you tell them and it's just not funny (laughs) and and that makes it funnier and then you and your (laughs) mate are triggered off again and you just you just can't you just can't stop I once went out with a girl who had Sort of like um, you, show, you have a hairstyle sometimes where... You know like Princess Leia would have those two little things? Donuts. Buttons, whatever they are. <laughs> and um, my mate um, was around the house once and um, she'd walked in and yeah. then he just did one thing, it was just a mime, and all he did was put his hands up to his ears and then mime the action as if she'd be able to just take those off, <laughs> like earmuffs. <laughs> and it must have been 40 minutes before we we could breathe again. And... I'm telling you now, but it's not funny. But what's funny about it is the fact that we were just, like, I love those moments. And you're right, it is that bonding thing. It's, it's sharing a moment with someone else. I mean, if it's just you on a bus, no, I could do without that <laughs> happening, you know what I mean? But Looking it is that, that brother and sisterhood, you know. Yeah. I remember, I've just had a flashback now to a, a den my dad built me in the garden when I was about seven, and a kid coming around who was a good friend of mine and something happened that made us both laugh a lot and i did i i, I literally uh well there was urine everywhere <laughs> and uh and i was thinking you know that's not going to be that's not going to be a good day at school tomorrow when because he can't not tell people no. so i'm just gonna have to own it and so i just owned it i went yes i did mm. it was the funniest thing in the world <laughs> yeah. um, it made me piss myself yes yeah. yes in a garden next to a friend it's quite nice in an enormous crowd when everybody gets it, though, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I just remember that Tim Vine, you know, I'd never seen him before, and if, if people are unfamiliar, it's just one joke after another. Sometimes themes, sometimes not, sometimes props, but they're just, it's just wordplay. But it's the relentlessness of it. It's just building up. He's, like, winding you up, and he hits you with ten gags, and then there's another ten, and then 30 minutes later, you're like... How how is he doing this? And it becomes a well, a, 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 a form of hysteria, I suppose. Which I guess is where we get hysterics and hysteria. Oh, I'm not sure. Yeah, There'll be something. It must your, be. Yeah, it becomes a hysteria. You know, a form of hysteria. I think it must be amazing to do that to people. Yeah, to have that control. And I wonder what it does to the performer as well. When they know, do they do they double down? Do they get? You know, is it just part of the job? Are they enjoying it? Do they enjoy it later? Do they want to keep it going? Have they ever killed anybody? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure some of the world's best comedians are also probably some of the world's uh, most prolific murderers. <laughs>
0: I'm sure there are also times when one person in the audience will just go. Yeah. My wife at a League of Gentlemen concert, <laughs> they eventually had to say to her, we can't do the joke
2: until you shut up. <laughs> She's that person. She'd gone. But what a brilliant person to be. I yeah. mean, they're fun to be around as well. You know, you know this, because it's just joy. And obviously, like, again, I reiterate the point, if she's doing it on the bus on a <laughs> road probably sit somewhere else. <laughs> but in a theatre, I think it's more than fine. And you've got
0: young children as well, isn't it? They have yeah. a propensity for that sort of thing, don't they? They where do. They just go.
2: One of the best moments, actually, right where you're sitting, my youngest was watching uh, TV, and I put on funny cat videos, because the kids love cats. And I thought, let's just do that. And it's just slapstick, basically. It's just cats falling off things (laughs) for eight forever. And um, I'll watch a few of them and be like, oh, yeah, that's another cat falling. But (laughs) it was the first time I I really felt that my son had found his own voice, in a sense, because the reaction of video after video after video of just the build-up and then the little payoff and this involuntary noise, this burst of laughter... Proper childish laughter, where he can't control it, and he's never heard himself do that either. No. And we're all just watching it, you know. Like so, and I, I think that was just a, a, a brilliant moment as a dad to watch that involuntary laughter, to watch that loss of control, but in the best way possible. It does his own little Tim Vine moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh. But for him, it's it's just cats falling. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's
0: brilliant. Let's take. Involuntary laughter and hysterics. Mm. Yes, hysterics. and let's
2: put it in there and let it chortle away. Yeah, until you need it. it. Great. Okay. So what's your second item? Uh, My second item is um, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the playing fields of Loughborough University in the summer. Um, I am very familiar with them, not because I went to Loughborough University, not because I'm particularly sporty, but because we lived in Loughborough for about uh, six or seven years when I was a kid. We used to sneak into the university as as children and we used to play a game that somehow um, everyone seemed to know the rules of, which was just called being chased by the security guards. (laughs) And because we weren't allowed to be there, you know, we weren't supposed to be there and we were, you know, just children and we would wait until they had um, cut the grass and then we would build like a grass wall so that we could very quickly jump behind them if any of the little blue vans with these sort of retired men in them um, spotted us. And it was the most thrilling way to spend a day because you were always about to get into trouble. Always. And a grown-up was going to get you. And a grown-up in a van, you know, with a little hat and a blue suit. <laughs> and it was like it was like when you read the Beano and, you know, he was always afraid of, like, the park warden. Dennis the Maness would always be afraid of, like, the, the parky. Mm. And for me... The security team at Loughborough University in the late 1980s, early 1990s were my Beano park warden. <laughs> and there was unwritten rules, which was that if we ran, like concrete, they could get us. That's fine, because they're driving along. But the second I, I get onto the grass, they're not allowed, because they can't drive the vans on the grass. And uh, we all seemed to understand that, that was you know this was how it worked. And then uh, one day they broke the rules, and they drove across the field. And it wasn't fair. No. And they caught us and they told us off. Anyway, my dad worked at university, so I was technically allowed to be there. <laughs> so I had that in my in my back pocket. But that was the last time I played. And it was just it was like being robbed of something, of realizing that the world doesn't work on your rules all the time, or that other people will break the rules mm. um, and pop that little bit of magic. So I'd like to get that magic back and I'd like to be able to do that again. In fact, when I turned thirty, I went back and met some of my pals that I used to do that with. And we went to the playing fields. So we went to Loughborough University, and we just walked around again. We weren't supposed to be there. No ID. We just snuck on. The difference is now we're thirty. No one was bothered because we just looked like lecturers or <laughs> something. And suddenly we were like the oldest people there. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you know, bittersweet. But um, I think that childhood sense of cheekiness, of pushing boundaries, breaking a few little rules, but in a safe sort of way it's uh, very innocent times and um, and and fun, you know? you've always got a mound of grass to go back to, though.
0: Yeah, that's yeah, yeah to a, hide. Yeah, base. It's you know? the base. When I'm at base, I'm safe. Yeah,
2: exactly. Yeah. And you can't get me. No, uh, that's the rule. It turns out they can. I'm amazed they yeah. broke the rules. Yeah, I know. It, they must not have read the rules. they <laughs> idiots. <hideous. laughs> of the uh, made up, uh, essentially um, evading authority rules. <laughs> I've been evading authority ever since. Who was the most daring of your mates? Who was the person who stuck to the path the most? Um, I have I have a sense that we were very much like a sort of... I don't think there was a renegade or a maverick or someone who pushed it harder. We were just like a little team, yeah. you know, like the A-team or like the kids from Stranger Things on our BMXs. <laughs> um, Anil, you know, he was, um, he was pretty fast and he's, he became a karate, uh, king of karate. Um, Simon Gibson when I caught up with him, he runs Toby Carveries up and down the country and he also thinks he's sold time travel. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be him yesterday at the door. <laughs> the rule, which is it, a strange thing when you talk about kids you went to school with, you would never say, there's a kid at my school called Ian. You'd always say, there's a kid at my school called Ian Fletcher. Yeah. There's a rule where you have to say their full names. I don't know why that is. I think it's the registry. Ah, uh, yeah. Could be, couldn't it? Yeah. So you're always taught to the see people name. in there. That is funny. Um, there was Cameron, Cameron Dewa, and he was a Fijian kid. And there was always this rumour that he was like um, royalty. <laughs> and um, we became really, really tight friends. And we'd been playing that game, running away from security. And we went for a final BMX because he was going back to Fiji. We a final BMX. And we went back to the house. And there was a limo outside the house and a little Fijian flag. And um, the ambassador to Fiji was in my house in this weird little street in Loughborough and my mum was bringing him tea and little sandwiches and that seemed unusual for Loughborough and it turned out that yeah um, Cameron was a a kind of a tribal kind of you know prince (laughs) (laughs) and he had his own village called Nabuso I think where they had to give him food anytime he wants food and they're not allowed to look him in the eye So it turned out that the kid, yeah, was actually, you know, that (laughs) I was going to be an the Yeah, Well, you could have got away with murder. I know. Do you not know who this is? (laughs) It was extraordinary. And I met up with him uh, not long ago as well. So, I mean, you know. Did uh, he go back to Fiji and then stay there? He went back to Fiji and then he came back um, to London, but his his family is still out there, you know. And, um, yeah, he did things very much on Fiji time. I remember going to see Who Framed Roger Rabbit? um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, the set began at 2 o'clock he would wander in about half past three um, as <laughs> the film was ending. And I'd be like, wait, I told you it was two o'clock. And he's like, yeah, I just, I'm just not bothered. He was never bothered about anything, would never be on time, but was like the sweetest, gentlest soul, mm. you know, the Fijian prince. Lovely. So I think that sense of childhood, that sense of yeah, freedom is, is important Yeah, to me. summed up on the playing fields of Loughborough where did you? Where,
0: where, where did you play? Well, when I was very small, of course, because um, uh, i a bit older than you, I played on bomb sites. Oh, my good gosh. Mm. Uh, wow. Yeah, the south of London, I was born around uh, the docks. So there were great areas that were still devastated from the war. Are you kidding? Even in the 60s. Really? Yeah, and they were sort of panelled off with uh, corrugated iron, but they always had gaps, and so we ran all over these bomb sites where buildings had been destroyed by the bombs during the war. My God. And it shows how long it took them to... Rebuild, Yeah. And how much that land would be worth now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it had been said. empty for 15, maybe 20 years. My God. Mm. The most dangerous thing was we did once, well, I don't think I was involved, but a boy was locked in a fridge, oh. one of those fridges with a handle that clicks oh, into yeah. place. Oh, no. Really dangerous places. Yeah. And, of course, it's a vacuum inside once you've shut that, once the air's gone, there's yeah. nothing. And uh, it was only... When we all went home and somebody came and said, Have you seen so and so? And that somebody said, I th- Well, I think he's still. Oh, oh I think God. he's in the fridge. Jeez. And he only just made it. You're kidding. No. Oh, my
2: God. That was only five. You know, why would I know that? Yeah, no, of course. I've, you know, you don't think of fridges as being, uh, you know, fun compared to fun places. Fun, yeah. yeah. But compared to uh, if you're, you're playing on a bomb site, it's bombs you look out for, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Rather than white goods. <laughs> yes. We did that, and uh, there was a playing field that did have a park
0: keeper. They always had a pointy stick for picking up leaves. So oh, really?
2: Is that what they thought? Yeah, that so
0: that's why they were quite frightening. Yeah, different world. There was always a man in a long coat sitting yeah. on a bench who we all knew as the weirdo. Right, oh, really? Oh. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but we just
2: learn to avoid them. Yeah. Bit sad. Cause it, um, the, yeah, because pedophiles are a recent invention, aren't they? Because they just used to be dirty old men. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so you'd avoid them. <laughs> just, they're all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> People don't flash anymore, do they? I don't know, do they? I think the flashing used to be a thing. There used to be flashers, didn't there? And there was trench coats and stuff. And I don't know where, it's a dying art. <laughs> I, I, I don't know where they've gone. You know, how did it die out? There are always stories of people flashing at Christmas and putting
0: fairy lights around their genitals. Oh well, they? that's nice. Yeah, yeah, which just would give people a little
2: treat. Yeah, because that's flashing, but making an effort. <laughs> yeah, isn't it? <laughs> otherwise, flashing, it's flashing with entertainment. Yeah. yeah, that's what you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope, I hope no one's flashing anyway. I mean, they must be. There must be flashes, but hopefully,
0: they're being reported now. Because yeah, the thing was that people just said, "Oh,
2: like flashed at me," Ugh. you know. It's the, ride, the rise of CCTV, and they put it to an end, I hope. Yeah. I, I've never been able to, on that note, um, I don't know how to walk behind a woman I don't know at night. And I don't know what to do. Um, do I cross over? Do I, don't, do I not cross over? Do I whistle? Maybe I'll whistle to show I'm no threat, but then it, it sort of lends it a kind of a horror movie, sort of, because it always sounds a bit wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's a man whistling at night? You know. <laughs> the Jaws theme. Yeah. <laughs> I've often thought maybe I should just carry a balloon. <laughs> and it would uh, it would render me a playful edge, but that uh, also you a look like a lunatic clown. <laughs> yeah, just properly. I'm turning slowly into Joker, aren't I? Yeah, just like just uh, with a balloon, the sort of yeah clownish thing and uh, hysterics, constantly laughing to myself. <laughs> Never mind. Right, so there we are. We put in the
0: playing fields of Loughborough University. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, now third item. Okay, this is the moment in the podcast where we take a short break for an advert. I hope you enjoy it.
1: Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do
1: the opposite
0: You never know with these things. Anyway, let's get back to Danny Wallace and find out what else he'd like to put into his time capsule.
2: Third item, um, it sort of sums up, I suppose, uh, some of my teenage years in that I once tried to see if I could write the worst joke in the world. And it was a big, long summer, and I was just kind of coming up with stuff to do, you know. And um, so I wrote this, uh, this joke, and the joke was, Poirot, Poirot says, um, hmm, there is something fishy about this case. To which uh, Captain Haddock replies, that's because I'm a fish. Now, it doesn't work on any level, right? Um, Poirot is there, but Captain Haddock, he's from Tintin. And, yes. and also he's animated. And he's not a fish. So why is he saying he's a fish? And why is he working with Poirot? You know, um, <laughs> There's a Belgian connection, but that's nothing to do with it, anyway. So I put that together, and I sent it off um, wherever I could, and um, I, I wrote a stern letter with it, saying, uh, "This is, you know, this is an example of my work. Do not steal this joke, or I will find out, and I will report you." Like to who? Uh, you know, Hallmark cards wrote back, um, and they said they were very impressed with the standard of my work. <laughs> but that there was no, uh, no opportunities um, as yet, which was a shame. Um, I'm pretty sure either Bruno Brooks or Gary Davies read it out on the radio, probably just because they just wanted to read something and it didn't, you know, occur to them that it didn't make sense or anything. Like that. They have no sense of humour. No. Um, Giles Brandreth wrote back to me. And, um, no, not Giles Brandreth, Richard Whiteley oh. from Countdown. And he was furious. He was absolutely furious with me. For, he just went, your joke is lousy. And he underlined that. And he said, it's taken me 15 years to get where I am. All this kind of stuff. Send better material. This kind of stuff. <laughs> and, and he was so disgusted with me that he didn't even use the um, stamped addressed envelope that I provided. And he made a point of using his own stamp. And, and he made a point of telling me that he was using his own stamp. <laughs> I don't need your charity. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the best thing happened which was that uh, a hero of mine wrote back. And I couldn't quite believe it. And, um, <laughs> and I lost the letter. I lost the letter that he'd written for more than 20 years until last summer when I was unpacking a box that had probably been moved from house to house for the last 25, you know, 20 years or whatever. And I found the letter. And it's over on that table over there. Shall I get it?
0: Yeah. There you are. Sorry. Sorry. No, it's all right. Off. Get it. I'd love to see it, and then we can find out who it's from. Exactly.
2: Building attention. It better not be Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got. I've got it. Have a look at this. Okay, I'm having a look. Remember, I'd, I'd said,
0: Mr. D. Wallace. I yeah. know, oh, even a Mister. Just D. Wallace. <laughs> Thirty Monmouth Street,
2: Bath. That we used to live. No, that was uh, where I worked. I thought I don't want to be no. sending my address out to everybody. <laughs> Very sensible. OK. And I remember, well, I've told them, I've told them, you know, do not nick this. OK. I... We're well, going to open the letter. Nice handwriting.
0: Ah. Oh. Uh, headed notepaper with the words Ronnie Barker. Yeah.
2: Hey. I'd sent it to his antique shop. Ah, uh, yes. Do you see what he says? No, you read it to me. gone. Dear Mr. Wallace, thank you for your letter, but I retired eight years ago. You must have missed it in the press. So now I have no connection with show business whatsoever, so I'm not in the market for any material. My apologies. Now this, this is the good bit. I will certainly, and this is a promise, never use your joke, not even in private conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Yours sincerely, Ronnie Barker. No wonder he's a hero. (laughs) I loved it. And, you know, I hope that he saw that there was a chance that I wasn't serious with this yes. and that I wasn't going to report him to the police or the authorities if he used it. But if not, I love the fact that he hid that insult in there, assuming that if I was genuine, I would absolutely not uh, understand. You'd never it. get it. I'd never get it. <laughs> I'd just be like, oh, that's nice. He's promised not to use it. So, you know, I did a load of weird stuff when I was a teenager in, in, that, in that way. Um, I was I used to play pranks and I used to do things. I remember once I did a very elaborate prank on a neighbour involving headed notepaper and uh, all sorts and other people, third parties and, uh, and and everything, and then I got found out. And, oh, my God, my stomach just dropped and I was, I was like, I'm going to have to tell Mum when she gets home. And she got home and I told her, I said, it's a really bad thing. And uh, when I looked up, she was weeping with laughter. <laughs> and she loved it. <laughs> she loved it. So I was, it was very supportive. So doing things like that yeah. was, was good fun, and it sums up um, a, a nice time in my life. That's fantastic. And the great thing is that Ronnie Barker
0: always wrote under a pseudonym, didn't he? His own material. Yeah. He would write under that pseudonym because he didn't want anybody to know that it was his material because he thought they'd be biased towards it. Right. He wanted it judged properly. Mm-hmm. And then he got one or two sketches into the show. And uh, eventually... From what I understand, the producers worked out that it was Ronnie Barker sending us in because it always suited him completely, and uh, he sort of knew the words by the time they got to do the rehearsal. Of course, yeah. So they sussed him, but nobody ever, nobody aside. ever admitted it. Nobody ever owned oh, really? up. Really? No, they kept saying, "Oh, we have got some more stuff from that bloke. He's really good,
2: actually." He wow, that is great. Uh, he, you know, he was just he was just a legend. I wish I could have, uh, you know, I was lucky enough to meet people like Terry Wogan, mm-hmm. and you know, just very briefly. And, and people like Ronnie Bach. I mean, that would have been great. I would have loved to have met him. Is it that letter that you'd like to put in there? Yeah, will do that, I'm put that in there. That'll do. Because okay. that's a physical thing. I've been yeah. putting in some weird stuff. You know, there's a huge amount of fields in those hectares of fields. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and a concept, and so I thought I'd better just put something in that people can actually pick up. Yes. Otherwise they go, this, is this appears to be empty. It's like imaginary field. <laughs> it must be somewhere in
0: this field, <laughs> yeah. surely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, that lovely letter from Ronnie Barker, that goes into your time capsule. So it's three things we've got in there. Yeah. Um, right, don't forget, at one point, one of these things has to be something you're really glad to get rid of. Got you. No problem.
2: Right, so where are we going next? Let's go, let's go to Dundee. Okay. And I want the Tay Bridge, the, old, the entire Tay Bridge. <laughs> and it's big, you know? Yeah. But you can pop it on one of the fields, maybe. Uh, because I, I, I was born in Dundee and I lived in Dundee until I was about seven and I had the very strong Dundonian accent, which I then lost because um, I'm an only child. My mum is Swiss. My dad's uh, from the borders. And so there was no one to back up my accent. So I'd have to listen to the proclaims uh, a lot. And we lived in a house that was, you know, you can see the River Tay, but you could, I mean, the, the Tay Bridge was just over there and um, on a sunny day in Dundee, which is maybe once every three years, <laughs> there's something about it that speaks to my soul. The glistening water, the green of the hills um, nearby, the, the dark grey of the buildings in Dundee. Um, I found myself back there a couple of years ago and I was on the train towards Dundee and something happened to me, like some some weird physical calm came over me just from the colours, just from, you know... And I think that probably we all have an element of that from, from childhood. Um, something, a landscape, a colour palette, something that speaks to our heart in some way and makes us just kind of everything's OK. Maybe it's because, you you know, you're at a time back then when you sort of, you know, every whim is catered for, someone's making you sausages, squash, ready access to squash, <laughs> and you can sit there and draw... Um, what do we do now when we're grown-ups? We don't get to just sit down and draw anymore. You know, we don't get to just grab a piece of paper and just sit down and just create something like that. Well, some of us do. You're doing a podcast. You know, <laughs> I'm lucky enough to, you know, uh, write, and so I can I can do that. But the, the purity of that, and for me, it was always summed up by looking up and seeing the Taybridge up in Dundee. Um, and with that comes everything about Dundee. Um, comes the accent. I find myself, whenever I go back up to Scotland, the first thing that happens is I start making a noise that I never make. Um, and I find myself going, aha, aha. And I must have done that when I was a kid. And it comes back. It's the first thing. And the rest of my accent remains, you know, normal. Um, but that element of it with the cabbie or whatever, I, just, I find myself just going, aha. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll put the Taybridge in there and the sort of... Um, the copious amounts of free time you have when you're a kid to do whatever you want, mm. you know. So these are, you know, I want this time capsule. Uh, it's it's bespoke, right? It's for me. Yeah, you're going to um, have fun in there. Yeah, so I've, I've got these I've got these things, and, you know, and with it comes free time, which is uh, something you don't really have anymore when you're no. kids of your own. No, it's true. Is it the light also behind it, though, that you'd like? And you say that the colours... Yeah, yeah. I think um, there are some spectacular sunsets in Dundee. Dundee, for me, whenever I got to the Edinburgh Festival or whatever and I'd see Scottish comedians, Dundee was a punchline. It was always a punchline in the way that Swindon or Kettering would be a sort of uh, an English punchline. And it was always Dundee. And I didn't get it because my Dundee was glorious. You get amazing sort of purple, blue skies and orange and pink and it just cycles through that. And I just, uh, I was watching Succession the other day you know, the brilliant TV drama. And Brian Cox, the actor who is also from Dundee, his character's from Dundee. And there's a moment where I was watching it and he's just going down a street. And it was my street. And he points at a bandstand that he used to play at when he was a kid, this character. And it's the bandstand I used to play at. And it was like Succession was doing a little time capsule for me of my, of my life. <laughs> so it feels like, yeah, there's a, there's a moment um, happening for Dundee. And, um, you know, I for for me, it's the happiest place. When did you leave Dundee? When I was about seven or eight. Um, when and yet you... it's still so clear in your memory. Oh, yeah. Yeah, standing on Magdalen Green near the bandstand, the shimmering Tay, the bridge, looking up and seeing a plane doing a loop-the-loop, little planes doing stunts, and then Dad bringing the camera out and taking a picture. And... Those were the days, obviously, when, you know... We all seemed to think that camera film was, like, gold or something. Mm-hmm. So you'd, you'd, you'd take a picture because it meant something. Mm-hmm. And it was a moment. And it was very rare that we'd squander one of those. So it was like... My dad to take the camera, out, it it's like a little event, and just takes a picture of me in the sunshine on the green. And in the, I still know the picture. It's so nice. There's his shadow, you know.
0: And... And that's why he chose it.
2: I think so. So maybe that's the, yeah. I mean, Yeah, because maybe... you would
0: choose the moment with a photograph. Yeah. I remember the extravagance of actually taking two rolls of film, and each of them had 36. You're going to do 72 photographs yeah. on your two-week holiday. Where are we going to put them all? Oh, it's ridiculous.
2: I can predict accurately the first picture as well on that roll. It would have been, if it was on holiday, it would have been of your meal. <laughs> because for some reason we, whenever we go on holiday the first thing you do is take a picture of your meal and you're, obviously, you're just like oh wow, we're having a meal and it'll just be like egg and chips but for some reason it's like a glamorous edge because you know, you've had your first day in the sun and there's a weird cocktail and so you take a picture of that and um, I don't know anyone who's uh, ever been pleased to see that photo again but I think that if I ever um, do a coffee table book it will be people's first meals on holiday and it will just be egg and chips, egg and chips, egg and chips. You know, <laughs> a succession of sunburnt dads. A drunk grandma, you know, all that kind of stuff. My grandma, she came on holiday with us once, and the first thing she did was she get off her face on whiskey <laughs> and snore all night. And I was like, this is hell. Is that the thing she bought in the duty-free? <laughs> no. so she'd bring it with her? I think a man called Tony at the bar um, just kept buying her whiskeys. Lovely. <laughs> I'm going to take you back to the bridge because... yeah.
0: Now, I've never been to Dundee. Mm -hmm. I'll admit that. I've been to lots of places in Scotland. And I'm I'm very fond of them. And I'm particularly fond of the cities. Yeah. But what I'm not so keen on is the wilderness. I don't like wilderness particularly. You don't like, oh, I see. And and actually, between all those cities, there's a lot of wilderness in Scotland. a lot of wilderness, yeah. Lots of places where you
2: think... Uh, it's going to take me hours to walk to the pub. <laughs> is it a fear of being attacked by a predator? What's, <laughs> what's your uh, What's your deal with the wilderness? Uh, not being able to get to the local shop. Uh, right. I mean. So you're a real city boy. I, well, am, I guess yeah. you grew up in London. Yes. So that's what you know. Mm. Yeah. There's something very special about London. I lived there, you know, 20-odd years, and there's something that happens in London that I don't think... Now I think about it, I don't think it happens anywhere else, but I love it. And it is the pause between you telling the cab driver where you want to go and the cab driver replying, okay. And it's that moment. (laughs) It's a silence. And you might use it to get in. You might do whatever. You might just look at them until they've worked it out. But it's when they're working out the route, they're recognising the place, and it's this map that explodes in their brain, all in this one pause. And I love listening to that pause. Yes. It's like the pause at the cinema when the adverts have finally finished and you know, it's going to be the title of the movie next. It's like these wonderful little moments of silence that we never appreciate. Mm. And I think that in London, that the fact that they learn the roots and do the knowledge, that pause is just loaded with experience and years and an entire city in a pause. I
0: love it. Do you think that that whole thing of doing the knowledge will disappear? Because at the moment, you get into a car and they just get their phone out and go, okay. Right, yeah, that's about
2: 25 minutes away. Yeah, I think it will, and um, it'll save a lot of people a lot of time. Yeah, they won't have to spend four years, you know. Ah, well, what if it breaks down? Well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, what if we'll, anything breaks down? We'll go and find an old bloke in a pub and say, he has the knowledge. Imagine that. Yeah. That'd be a great sort of apocalyptic film where they've got to find the, the last man who's got the knowledge. Because <laughs> they can't get somewhere. No, needs, nobody knows where to go. Yeah, they are got to track down Blind Harry, you know, <laughs> who feels his way around London, based on, based on maps he learned 60 years ago. Let's do it. Right. Let's make that film. In the meantime, I'm going to be putting a great
0: effort into getting the Tay Bridge into your time capsule. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you give me some work to do. You can shrink wrap it. Uh, no, I just get a bigger time capsule. OK. And okay. there's a lot of digging if we're going to bury it. Yeah. I know that. Okay, there we are, four
2: lovely things. Uh, Now we have to have something that you're glad to bury. Right, something I want to get rid of. Mm -hmm. The thing I think I'd uh, maybe get rid of is a... uh, Well, I've got to. But I'm putting it in here only because I want it to be replaced by something else. And I think I'm going to put in um, my mother's practical gifts. So I get very practical gifts... From my mum. I mean, sometimes I mean they're practical, but they're also like useless in a sense as well. So she'll for Christmas, I will get this big thing and I'll open it and it'll be like sort of metal tray with spaces. I think they're called canape boats, and I'm supposed to now make canapes, and I don't make canapes. (laughs) <laughs> I've never made a canapé. I've never shown interest in canapés. I've never mentioned canapés. I don't insist on canapés when I go round to theirs. No. People have never asked me for a canapé. Um, and yet my mum thinks, oh, you probably need something for his canapés. And now I, I've got to be like, thanks for the canapés boat thing. But, you know, <laughs> and I know that if I don't use this canapé boat thing, she's going to start asking questions like why is she maybe she just really loves canapes and she needs someone to do it there's one year where (laughs) where I knew what I was getting for Christmas because um, you know when people sound you out and they sort of they want to see so she she says to me literally says to me I was just wondering uh, Daniel um, what's what's your favourite type of fire extinguisher (laughs) yeah as if as if I've got one (laughs) Oh, yeah. it's so difficult to choose. Yeah, uh, do, you know, I, my favourite is powder. That's why you know one <laughs> suitable for liquid fires. Um, and uh, so I was like, I, can't, I was saying to my wife, I was like, she can't be getting me a fire extinguisher. Who gets a fire extinguisher for Christmas? So anyway, it was Christmas Day, and I opened it. It was a fire extinguisher. Um, so you know, and I don't know how to. How do you? How do you show pleasure uh, when holding a fire extinguisher? It's not like something you can, oh, I'll use that now. Yeah, it's let's like, let it off. Yeah, you can't. You're not allowed. And you you don't want to use it either. Ideally, the best fire extinguisher is one you never use. Yes. So now I've just got a big fire extinguisher. <laughs> but I couldn't even bother to describe it, There, It's just a fire extinguisher. <laughs> I remember on my um, 16th birthday, no, 18th birthday, I was like, uh, I wonder, you know, it's a big birthday. And, you know, in America kids get like cars or you know we've never been a family like that in in, in sort of any uh, way but I was like oh it'll be interesting to see what will happen maybe it'll be a little silver pocket watch you know you're you're a man now my son go out into the world engraved yeah no not me I got a glove puppet a Mr Bean video and a belt (laughs) all of which are great but I already had the Mr Bean video. Um, it's hard to get excited about a belt. And I was 18 and had no use for a glove puppet. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a real coming of age. I wasn't going into puppetry. I was a man. Um, so, so, you know, while I appreciate these gifts from the most generous and loving and golden-hearted woman who has ever walked the earth, I think that if I pop that in the time capsule, it's going to be replaced by someone else. And, you know, Muggins here is going to start getting silver pocket watches ah. and American cars. <laughs> a whole, because with this, there is a rule I've decided on on your podcast. Thanks. I've decided the rule is all the, all the presents I should have got should now come my way. Oh, yes, so of course. I want 43 years' worth of That thing's of gone. Practical, that thing of yeah. impractical presence is gone. Yeah. So in, in their place, yeah. you're bound to get great presents. Exactly. So I should walk upstairs and, and all the presents that should have been given to me will now magically appear. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, yeah, that would be my one slightly selfish thing. Ah, um, I can have the moon landing game.
0: The moon landing game? Yeah, it? when I was a kid, I got it one Christmas and the balloon burst within about 10 minutes. I don't even know what the moon landing oh, game is. It was the year of the moon landing. Ah. Mm, it was a basically a lunar module with a balloon on the top and a large fan. Ah. And you had to blow it across the room and try and land it on the moon, the other side of the room. Oh, wow. Great game. That's pretty good. Great game. And it popped. And 10 minutes in, oh. pop. No other balloons.
2: You know, I had that with my Evel Knievel, uh, the, the little uh, stunt bike. I took it outside, so excited, wound it up, let it go, and it went straight into a Volkswagen Golf and smashed on my first go. But it happens now, Christmas Day, I got my son a little remote-controlled plane. He's very into planes. And, um, of course, I should have said, you know, let's not go where there's loads of trees (laughs) because neither of us have ever done this before. Yes, hang on, looking around your yeah. your garden, it's completely surrounded by trees. So within five minutes, mm-hmm. the uh, tree uh, has claimed uh, its victim. Oh. And uh, I was the dad on Christmas Day, like something out of a sitcom, in my pyjamas on a very short step ladder, holding a broom, which I'd gaffer taped to a hoe, which I'd gaffer taped <laughs> to some big weird duster thing, <laughs> at the top of this small ladder, waving it around on Christmas Day... Obviously, everyone walking by knows exactly what's happened. They can just put it, oh, the dad has given the son a plane, he's got it stuck, it's Christmas Day, he's it out. Yeah, yeah. And I was still about 30 feet short of the thing, <laughs> but I, I wasn't letting it stop me. I was just batting everything. Praying I was for and a from the wind. dad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I guess it's, it's, you know, that's a tale as old as time.
0: Mm, no doubt about that. Well, I think that your mum... This gift of practical presence. Clearly she feels that you have everything you need, and I think she's
2: trying to fill a void. I, I, well, the void that needs to be filled is, where is my moon landing, going? <laughs> why did I have to buy my own Evil Knievel? <laughs> and, um, and I want a remote control plane, that's why I bought it for him. Yeah. You know, so I'm overcompensating now. But, you know, um, I'm ready for fires. And canapes. (laughs) Okay, well, um, we'll seal up your time capsule with these lovely things in
0: there, and uh, and we shall go and uh, enjoy a few canapes. The utensils are there, and we can just, you know, just go and fill it up with the most marvellous canapes. God, I'm starving. Well, I'll Mm. make you
2: one right now. I've only got Marmite and Peanuts. Thank you.
0: You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest... Danny Wallace. You can subscribe to this podcast on ACAST, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you usually get your podcasts. And if you have the time, we'd be grateful if you would rate us and leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just go to at my TC Pod or at Fenton Stevens. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens, and the music is by Pass the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. So, until next time, thank you for listening. I said, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Yeah, look, that's where you reply, you're welcome, Mike. Like that. I mean, honestly, no manners, some people. Bye.